0: Well, let me ask you have you ever looked back on the way that you dressed, talked, or thought? in elementary, middle school, high school, college, you, you look back and you're like, man, that was wrong. Like I was, I don't know what I was thinking, what I was wearing, what I was saying, how I was talking. Like it was just all wrong, right? I mean, I, I've done that. I've looked back and looked at the way I dressed or did my hair or talked or whatever, and just thought uh, th- that, that was wrong. Like right? um, I know Mark, one of our pastors does for sure. I mean, he's got to, I mean, check this out. This was Mark Tatum as a child. Here's his hat, he's got his Bugle Boy shirt on, he's rocking all denim. Uh, here's another picture of Mark, uh, just here in the class picture, with his glasses, his nice hair, All right, Next picture, there's a football player right here. Just, just man, what a, what a goofy, cute little kid, right? Next picture, here he is, crushers, he's a crusher, man, he's playing hockey. All right, next, Mark Tatum. Mr. Jaguar, did you know? That Pastor Mark was a Jaguar? I mean, that that's he's a Mr. Jaguar. That's what you could call him from now on. Pastor Jaguar. Mr. Jaguar. I mean, wh- whatever you want to call him. Let's, let's look at Mr. Jaguar. Here's Mr. Jaguar. He's got a unibrow going here and some braces. Let's see what, what's next? Oh, that's him and Laura in high school. He made one right decision, right? We gotta give him that. He made a good decision there. Maybe you've looked back on your life, though, too. You look at kids' pictures, or, or maybe even the way you thought about something, and you realized, I was thinking wrong about that. I was wrong about that. This past year, I realized I was wrong about something, that I had been thinking wrongly about something. You see, with the death of Ahmad and George Floyd and, and many other black people in our country and the racial unrest in our country, I began to try to restudy and figure out where I landed on some of these issues, as I'm sure a, a lot of us did. And so I began to study the scripture. I began to listen to the experiences really for the first time in my life from black friends that I had and black pastors. I began to read books and study and watch documentary, all kinds of everything I could get my hands on last year in 2020. I was reading it. I was studying it, trying to figure out, have I been thinking right? Do I still believe and do I still land and do I still stand where I had stood and do I still view all these things through the same filter I'd always viewed them through? Or have I been thinking wrongly? I read the scripture, Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Isaiah chapter one, verse 17. God's speaking to his children, to Israel, to the nation of Israel. He says this, seek justice, correct oppression. It's also translated rebuke the oppressor, bring justice to the followers, plead the widow's case. God's not happy with his people, Israel, because they've been separating their spiritual lives from their social and political lives. Commentators on Isaiah have noticed that Isaiah's prophecies are very political in nature and in instruction. And then Jesus comes on the scene, the son of God. And in Matthew chapter 25, he says this, that it's the mark of every true believer. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, this will be a part of your DNA that you will care for and you will serve the poor, the orphan, the widow, the, the prisoner. And Jesus says, whatever you do for these, for these marginalized people, whatever you do for them, you're doing for me. And so Jesus says, it's the mark of every true believer. It's the DNA, it's in the DNA of every follower of Jesus to care for marginalized and oppressed people. So justice for the oppressed, we said this last year, if you were here, you remember this, justice for the oppressed is a spiritual issue. You you, you can't get away from that in the scripture. It is a spiritual issue. I told you I studied the scripture. I also listened to the experiences of some of my black friends and black pastors. And I'll never forget the story that my friend Coleman told me, very large man played football for Texas Tech, who said that everywhere he goes in order to disarm people, he puts a huge smile on his face and he's very loud and jovial and comes in and will give you a big hug and shakes your hand. And he's being nice. But what he told me is that he will overdo that in order to disarm people. He will almost put on a show. He'll put on an act in order to disarm white people specifically, and it broke my heart. And as I talked with more of my friends and more black pastors, I learned that they do the exact same thing. And that broke my heart, that they would think that they have to change in order to disarm me. I mean, how sad is that? It broke my heart. I was telling that story. I'll never forget. I was telling it to to Brandon and Mark. And Mark, one of our pastors, many of you know, has a black son named Jay, and and he said this. He said, well, I guess I'll just have to have Jay wear sonic t-shirts, wear his glasses, and have a huge smile on his face for the rest of his life so he doesn't scare anybody. That broke my heart. To learn of the experiences that black Americans have had in our country and even in the church, it broke my heart. I read books like Color of Compromise and, and other books and in The Color of Compromise, I, I learned about redlining and white flight and blockbusting in a way that I had never heard before in any history class ever. And I learned about Lubbock's dark and evil history and all of these things. And it broke my heart. I learned about the church's preaching for and promoting slavery in the history of our country. And that broke my heart. I couldn't believe it. I learned about in the last hundred to 200 years, even when the church wasn't promoting it or, or preaching for it, they were complicit in it behind the scenes. I learned that in the 20th century, when it came time to speak up again, the church has just remained silent. Now, in case you're like Clayton, you're just making all that up or you've bought into the media, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention in the mid nineties issued a statement apologizing and repenting for their role in racism, for promoting it, for preaching for it, for being complicit in it, and then for their silence in it. And nearly every other denomination in our country has done the same thing. They've issued apologies and repented for their role, their role in racism. And so I'm reading about these things it's breaking my heart and I'm realizing my own complicitness, my own silence. And when you realize you've been thinking wrongly and you have a change of mind and you have a broken heart, it's time to repent. It's time to turn from that sin. And so, as I said, I was broken, my lack of humility, led to wrong assumptions, wrong thinking. I've said it before that ignorance breeds arrogance and arrogance breeds resistance. And that had been true in my own heart. I wasn't defending. I wasn't speaking up for the oppressed. I was thinking wrong and it was time to repent. So I decided I was going to speak up. And so I preached a message last summer during our Rise series about rising freedom. And I talked about my brokenness. I talked about systemic racism. And I talked about how as a church, we were going to strategize on what it looked like for us to take next steps to defend the oppressed in our country. And we made it a part of our family values as a church to not only preach for, but to mobilize and strategize to defend the oppressed in our country. I've gotten coaching over the last year on what it looks like to become a a multi-ethnic staff and a multi-ethnic church because I wanna grow here. And I want this to be a multi-ethnic church. And so I've gotten coaching here and we're continually strategizing here. But some people would say, Clayton, you're getting too political. Your church is getting too Political. So so what, what do we do here? What do we do when the spiritual intersects, when the biblical intersects with the political? What do we do? How do we engage? Do we engage? And if we do, how do we do so and not be partisan? So I, I want to kind of tell you a little bit about my journey over this last year as it relates to the church and politics. I read an article by Tim Keller in the New York times on our app. It's linked uh, to it right there. If you download our app, the city church, love it. Click message notes, the quote I'm about to read you there. And at the end of that quote, there's a link to this article in the New York times, Tim Keller is a very popular theologian, pastor and author in our country, uh, has had a great influence in my life, uh, through his works and preaching. And so, you know, if you know who Tim Keller is, you know, this isn't some, you know, liberal guy. This guy loves Jesus, loves the Bible, loves the gospel. And and here's what he said in his article in the New York times. He said, what the, what, what should the role of Christians in politics be more people than ever are asking that question. Christians cannot pretend that they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology said this about the church's mission to the world regarding evangelism and ministries of mercy. Here's what he said. Such ministries of mercy to the world may also include watch this participation in civic activities or watch this attempting to influence governmental policies to make them more consistent with biblical moral principles in areas where there is systemic injustice manifested in the treatment of the poor and or ethnic or religious minorities, the church should also pray and as it has opportunity, speak against such injustice. All of these are ways in which the church can supplement its evangelistic ministry to the world and indeed adorn the gospel that it professes. But such ministries of mercy, mercy to the world should never become a substitute for genuine evangelism, adorn, not replace. I listened to a message by Pastor Matt Chandler this past year. Matt Chandler started preaching when I was in high school. He was at some of the camps, youth camps that I went to in high school and has since uh, took over a church in the Metroplex. It's called the Village Church now. It's grown. He's the president of Acts 29. It's a church planning network in our country and all over the world popular, uh, pastor, author, theologian. And, uh, Matt Chandler said this in one of his messages this past year, it had a great influence on me. He said, as the church, we cannot overplay our role in politics, but we also cannot punt our role. When it comes to politics, we can't overplay. We can't punt. We must guard against both errors. And so with, with reading things like this and and studying and reading the scripture, I preached another series last fall called citizen, which was about being citizens of heaven, that neither party was a Christian party. I cast that we would be a church with our own platform. And sometimes that would look like siding with conservative ideals. Sometimes that would look like siding with liberal ideas. We are neither ourselves. We are citizens of heaven. And I gave two very specific examples we would preach against, support, mobilize for racial injustice. And at the same time, we would defend the lives of the unborn. Two highly partisan issues that both have clear biblical teaching about how to believe and respond. Obviously, there are others on each platform, but, but these were the two examples that I gave. And I cast that we would be a church of both and, not either or. That we would be salt and light, not hyper-involved, not overplaying, but not abandoning our role altogether, not punting. So we will engage even when it's controversial. I would rather step into the controversy and bring the gospel and the scripture to bear on that controversy and us disagree a little bit on what that looks like, than not address it at all to punt. I'm not going to punt. And we're not gonna overplay either. So how do we do this? When do we engage? Why do we engage? What does this look like? I'm gonna give you a filter that I'm using that I believe our church should use that I believe you should use on what this looks like, how to do this and, uh, and, and why we should. So I'm gonna give you the filter, just review it real quick and then we'll go step by step through it. So number one, you've got to interpret the times. We need a gospel filter. Jesus said that you and I, his followers, must be able to interpret the times. And we do so with a gospel filter. I love this quote from Karl Barth. He said this, a preacher should have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. A Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. To help their people interpret the times through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of the scripture. And so, when culture or Christians are responding to local or national issues without the lens of the gospel and without the lens of the scripture, it's my job to call us back to the gospel, call us back to the scripture when we are not interpreting the times through the filter, through the lens of the gospel and the lens of the scripture. Number two, we've got to interpret the scripture. Is there a clear position here in the scripture regarding this issue? What is God's best? What is God's heart? What does God's law say about this particular issue? Galatians, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, we learned was written because they had too many rules. They had gone too far right, if you will. And Paul writes to this church and through the gospel and through the scripture, he brings realignment Paul's letter to the Corinthians was because they had gone too far left. They had gotten too liberal. And so he writes to the Corinthian church to bring them back to the gospel and bring them back to the scripture like a mechanic brings realignment. Paul brought realignment to the churches that he wrote to with the word of God. And so let me just say this, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you lean liberal or conservative, let me just say this to you. If you have no problem, if you have no tension With the candidates in your party and the issues in your party, you've got a problem. You've already got a problem. If you've got zero tension with your candidates and zero tension with the issues that your party stands for, you've already got a problem. Because if you're a follower of Jesus and you love and believe the scripture is the God's word, then there should be some tension because you're dealing with broken systems and broken people. There should be some tension. Number three, we've got to interpret the audience and application. Who is the scripture speaking to and what is the application here? Usually the scripture is referring to followers of Jesus and speaking to followers of Jesus and the applications for the church it rarely crosses over into the government. Now, Paul will tell us in Romans 13 and elsewhere what the government should do and what the government's responsible for and that we're to submit to the governing authorities. So, so there is some talk of the government, but most of the scripture and the application of the New Testament in our new covenant is for followers of Jesus, is for the church. And so when it comes to systemic racism, the position is clear in the scripture for followers of Jesus, for the church. We are to empathize, we are to listen, we're to care, and we're to speak up when it comes to injustice. When it comes to immigration, Christian, the scripture is clear about what our heart and role is as the church when it comes to immigration. We're to care for the immigrant that's among us. Now, politically speaking, you may have a disagreement, even with another follower of Jesus, about border issues and walls and and policies and all those kinds of things that the scripture is silent on. But Christian, if there are immigrants and foreigners here among us, the scripture tells us one thing, care for them. That's our role. That's our role, it's clear. So, so the scripture will speak to followers of Jesus, what our role is, what our heart should be, and what the church's role should be. And it doesn't necessarily cross over into a political party or affinity or ideal. It can impact that, it can influence that for sure. But our roles here are clear. What about abortion? What does the scripture say about abortion? What, what, what is our role? How are we to view this and the church's role here? Well, once again, let's use our filter, right? Number one, we've got to interpret the times. We've got to interpret the times when there's a major local or national issue and Christians on both sides of this argument are not responding the way the gospel or the scripture, scripture commands, what, what do we do? We've got to interpret the times through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of the scripture. So that's why we're talking about it because clearly there's a, a vote happening right now in our city, early voting's happening. Uh, May 1st, there's a vote uh, a, a vote happening for the vote for life. And, and so if you're on social media or if you've read any of the, the news coverage or the papers or any of that kind of, it's been talked about a lot for the last six months. And so what are we to do? How are we to view this vote? How are we to respond? How should we engage? We've got to interpret the times through the lens of the scripture and through the lens of the gospel. So that's number one. Number two, remember, we got to interpret the scripture. Interpret the scripture. What is the scripture saying? And let me just say, if you're a Christian, this is your starting place. Now I get, if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus. And I know there's probably some of you here, maybe some of you watching online right now, if that's you, then you're not going to start here. And I get that. And, and I'll, I'll talk to you here in a little bit, but if you're a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, then we start with the scripture. We don't start with what culture's saying. We don't even start with philosophical arguments. We don't, Start with your experience or my experience or the experience of my friend or family member that I love so dear. We don't start there as Christians. We start with God's word and we don't stand over God's word. Remember this from the Daniel series. We submit ourselves under God's word. That's for Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, we start with the scripture. Now, before we dive into what the scripture says about this, I want to talk to ladies real quick, who've had an abortion, or maybe you've considered it, or maybe you have a family member or a friend stats will tell us that one in four women, maybe as many as one in three have had an abortion in their lifetime. And so I know as we dive into this, I'm talking to ladies in the room who have been here and whether that brings pain to you or not, I I know there's there's ladies who have been here and this is a sensitive issue. And so, so here's what I wanna tell to you, say to you first, I'm sorry. I'm sorry on behalf of a church who has oversimplified your situation, your experience, has vilified you, has put a label on you and put you in a category or put a stat on you. You're not a stat, you're not in a category. If you've ever even considered that or if you've gone through with it, It was not an issue of convenience. I'm sorry that people in our country have said that your story was an issue of convenience. I know it wasn't. If you've made this decision before, I know there's probably nothing convenient about it. And so I just wanna start off saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry on behalf of Christians. I'm sorry on behalf of the church that we have too often oversimplified your experience and vilified you in the process. I know some of you were pressured to do so by a family member or by a man. It wasn't something you wanted to do, but you were pressured to do it. And I'm sorry for that. I know in the same token, there's some men in here. You maybe have pressured a woman to do that before, or you found out about it after the fact and talking about this will bring up some pain for you. And I'm sorry for that, but I hope you'll extend a little bit of grace to us right now, because we have to talk about difficult things. We, we can't dodge them. We, we have to address the, the, the pain, but deal with the tension here that God's word speaks to these issues. And we have to dive into them and we have to talk about them. And hopefully as we do it, you'll find us talking about these things with a lot of grace and with a lot of mercy but we must dive into the scripture. But as we do so, here's what I want you to know as we walk through this and and maybe you feel guilt or shame or not, here's what I want you to know, just like Jesus said to a woman caught in adultery, where are your accusers? There are none. And so neither do we condemn you. But now with that tension, let's let's see what God's word has to say because we must interpret what the scripture says here. Psalm 139 verse 13 through 16, David says this, you made all the delicate had passed. God, David and God's word makes it very clear. God is the primary workman, nurturer, fashioner, knitter, creator in the process of gestation from start to finish. It is a work of God. What is happening in the womb is the unique work of God, namely the making of a person. Now we can argue endlessly over what full personhood is, but the scripture is clear that what is happening in the womb is a unique person forming work of God. So because God is uniquely at work in the womb, from the moment of conception, the destruction of conceived human life, whether embryonic fetal or viable is an assault on the unique person forming work of God. God is the primary worker. It is his workmanship from start to finish. Jeremiah, the prophet said this, this is God's word in chapter one, verse five. He said this, I knew you, God said before I formed you in your mother's womb, Jeremiah chapter 22, Verse 3 says this This is what the Lord says Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Surely the lives of the unborn are innocent blood. In Exodus, God says this, chapter 21, verse 22 to 23, to his People, his children, Israel. He says this now suppose two men are fighting and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so she gives b- birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation for the woman to the woman's husband that the husband demands and the judges approve. But watch this if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life. God says there is no difference between the life outside the womb and the life inside the womb. They are the same in the eyes of God. Jesus says this in Matthew, in Luke rather chapter 18, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But watch what Jesus said. Jesus called the children to him and said, let these little children, these babies come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, now here's what's interesting about this word babies here in Luke chapter 18. It is the same word that Luke uses for the unborn baby in Elizabeth's womb in Luke chapter one, verse 41 and verse 44. These babies that are coming to Jesus and Jesus says don't hinder them, bring them to me. These babies, the same word for a baby outside the womb, Luke uses for a baby inside the womb. There is no difference in the eyes of God. So here's the the big idea in the scriptures that relates to abortion. Here's the big idea. Here's what the scripture saying. Life begins at conception. Life begins at conception. That's what the scripture is telling us. And it's clear there's no way around this. And so ending a life is always murder. If life begins at conception and that's the way God sees it, then ending a life is murder. Now, let me say this, because some would say, and I get it, it's not your body, and and, and I understand that. Listen, I I get where this even kind of comes from, and I think it comes from a good place. Because of the treatment of women in our society and the history of our country, because of the paternalism in our country, because of the pressure that men have put on women in our country historically, I get where this is coming from. And I think it comes from a good place, but there's some problems here as it relates to abortion. Because scientifically, even though it's your body, the scripture says, and scientifically, you've got another body growing inside of you. At eight weeks, at eight weeks of gestation, all the organs are present in that baby. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidney kidney is cleaning the fluids. The finger has a fingerprint. That baby will suck its thumb as early as eight weeks. It can hear sound and it will recoil when it's pricked from the pain at eight weeks. So scientifically, We've got a problem here because there's another body inside of a body. So what, do, how, do, how do we handle that legally? Well, we've all got, we've got all kinds of laws that say what you can't and can't do with your own body. As it relates to hurting other bodies. You can't prostitute yourself. You can't do drugs. You can't drive drunk and you can't walk around naked. These things are against the law. It's your body, but we've got all kinds of laws legally speaking that will prevent you from using your body to hurt, another body. One principle of justice and law is that when two legitimate rights conflict with one another, the right that protects the higher value prevails. When we deny the right to drive at hundred miles an hour, we do so because the value of life is greater than the value of being on time or getting a thrill. The right of the unborn not to be killed and the right of a woman not to be pregnant may be at odds, but they are not equal rights. Staying alive is more precious and more basic than being pregnant. No one would say you have the right or you could make the choice to murder another body regardless of the situation. The problem is we've changed the name of something to make it seem more palatable, but the act is murder. The name has trained us to think it's something different, but the scripture teaches life begins at conception. And there's no way around that if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, let me address you spiritually if you're a Christian. Did you know that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your body does not belong to you? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You you don't belong to yourself. You belong to your Lord Jesus. And so Paul, Paul tells us bluntly, You are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You are his and your body belongs to him. And if we're a Christian, spiritually speaking, we must start the conversation with what God sees, what his opinion is on the matter. And Christian, when you disagree with scripture, you are wrong. I've said it before and I will say it again. If you disagree with scripture, you're wrong. We don't stand over scripture and criticize it. We submit ourselves under the scripture and we are taught by it and we are transformed by it. And if God is at work from the moment of conception, why would a Christian, at least, why would a Christian ever think it's okay to stop something God has started? God even takes, we we read this in the scripture, God even takes evil situations and evil starts and he turns them around for good. He took the greatest sin ever committed, the crucifixion of the son of God on the cross, the greatest evil ever perpetrated, and he turned it around and he raised his son and he brought life from the dead. And that's what God does. He turns graves into gardens. He takes evil situations that were meant for evil and he turns them around for good. That's the gospel that we believe, Christian. And so there is no evil enough situation that we believe that God can't turn around and restart and bring life from that dead place. That is the gospel. But let me say this, if you still disagree with me, And I believe there are some. I believe there are some of you, maybe you're watching online right now or listening online. I I believe there are some of you that will disagree with me. And I I get that. But here's what I'm inviting you to do. Here's what, here, here's my prayer for you and for me, that over this next year, we will continue to love and follow Jesus and study his word, believing that God's word will transform us, Romans 12. It will transform our minds. It will transform our hearts. It will transform our thinking. And I hope next year, I've realized I was thinking some wrong things this past year, and I hope you do too, whether it's about this or not. I hope in the next year, as you love, follow and worship Jesus and study his word and are transformed from the inside out. My prayer for all of us is that we will look back this time and we will say, God did some great things in my life. He transformed me. I was thinking this or I was living like this or I was talking like this and God transformed me through the power of his Holy Spirit. And through his word, I was transformed. I'm not like that anymore. That's my prayer for all of us. And so in light of that, I'm just inviting you to come on a journey with us as we love and follow and worship Jesus. And as we study his word and as we're transformed from the inside out by God's word, third point is this on our filter. We've got to interpret the audience and the application. So we interpret the scripture. But now we've got to interpret the audience and the application. Is there clear teaching here for the church, for followers of Jesus? And is there some clear application here for you and I as followers of Jesus? And I believe there is. As we study the scripture, first of all, our first application point is this. We need to speak with conviction. We need to speak with conviction. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. We must speak up for all those who are being oppressed and surely the unborn are an oppressed people that are being crushed. We must speak up. We must preach God's word. We must speak up with conviction anchored to conviction, to the word of God, and we must vote. It's one of the great gifts we have in this country to influence governmental policies, as Wayne Grudem said, to be more in line with biblical moral principles. It's one of the ways that we speak up and we ensure justice Proverbs 31, speak up and ensure justice for those who are oppressed. It's one of the ways that we speak up. And there is a vote right now, a vote for life that's happening currently. And uh, I believe the last day to vote is May 1st. That's the actual day. And so here's what I wanna tell you right now. I'm voting for this ordinance. And, and here's why Now I, I wanna explain this to you and kind of where, where I'm at and how I've gotten here, okay? So right now, as far as, I'm, uh, as, far as I, I know, I checked again this morning, there's been 23 cities in the state of Texas that have passed this ordinance. So Lubbock, if I'm, if I'm still right, uh, would be the 24th city if they were to pass this ordinance. There's a couple of other cities outside of the state of Texas that have passed this ordinance as well. Now, some have said, if we pass this ordinance, that the city of Lubbock will be sued, can't really enforce it, and we'll be out taxpayer money. And obviously that, that could be true, but right now from what I've studied and read, and again, I could be wrong and this could, this could update this next week, but Planned Parenthood brought lawsuits against seven or eight of these cities in Texas, and they've dropped every one of them so far, doesn't mean that won't be the case for us, but so far they've dropped every one of them. One of the reasons they've dropped it is because there is some civil responsibility here as far as lawsuits are concerned and they don't want to deal with that. And fortunately, In all of these cities, and it's already been offered here in Lubbock, every one of these cities, including Lubbock, have been offered to have free representation that lawyers that will work for us and serve us pro bono, without cost. So best case scenario is we're not sued, or if we are, we get out of it with zero cost, zero dollars. But let's talk about the worst case. Let's just say, those who are against this proposition, this ordinance, are right, and we're sued, and we lose, and we're out some taxpayer payer dollars. I'm okay with that. I- I- I'm okay with that. P- personally, I- I'm okay with that. Um, we're proposing right now to spend several million dollars on a park, a block or two away from here. Uh, we spend all kinds of money on all kinds of different things that we believe are of value or of worth. And surely life is valuable and worth it enough to spend some money on. To take a stand for something, to take a chance on influencing governmental policies, to bring them more in line with biblical moral principles, it's worth the money to me. Now you could say as a taxpayer, it's not. To me, it is. It's worth the dollars in the worst case scenario. So even with this worst case scenario, people say different things about how binding it's going to be. If it's going to stand up, there's a lot of arguments here. I'm no legal expert. So here's what I'm doing. I'm erring on the side of obeying God rather than man. And I'm erring on the side of attempting to influence governmental policies, to make them more consistent with biblical moral principles on this patch of earth, that I'm home, that it's home to me, that I'm responsible for. And so I'm voting for the ordinance to speak up for those who are oppressed, to ensure justice for those who are being crushed and cannot speak for themselves. So I'm voting for it based on those reasons. Secondly, our second application point is this. We speak up with conviction, but we must also serve with compassion. We must serve with compassion. Jesus said in Matthew 25, whatever you do, For the poor, the orphan, the widow, the prisoner, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. We've got to step up and serve with compassion. James chapter two, James, the brother of Jesus said this, if you come across someone who's poor and you just say, hey, go, I wish you well, I hope you get fed, blessings on you, prayers for you, you know, but you don't do anything about it. Then James says, you got faith without works and that faith is dead. We are called to Serve with compassion, not just speak words, but back that up with compassionate service. Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe, and the landmark decision in our country at the Supreme Court, was befriended by a pro-life leader whose love and patience eventually broke through her fear and anger, and McCorvey eventually reversed her opinion on abortion and joined the movement to overthrow Roe versus Wade. We should all follow this man's example who befriended McCorvey and realized that behind every abortion, there is a hurting mother. And God loves that mother just as much as he loves the baby. He served her with compassion. Author, philosopher, theologian, educator, civil rights leader, Howard Thurman said this about hate. He said, hate is formed in a situation in which there is contact without fellowship. Remember those words, three words, contact without fellowship. He said, that's where hate grows. Much of modern life, he said, is so impersonal. This is a long time ago. (laughs) Much of modern life is so impersonal that there is always opportunity for seeds of hatred to grow unmolested. He said, we're never really in a position to be with one another. We develop an understanding of that person that is strikingly unsympathetic in those situations. When we're close enough to people to observe them, but through that shallow contact, we develop an understanding of them that is hard, cold, minute, and deadly. And if anything explained our society today, this does, especially with the advent of social media. Contact without fellowship. Disagreements and arguments about something with someone you don't know. Saying things to someone or about someone you would never say to their face. You see, that's where hate grows. Hate grows in situations where there's contact without fellowship. And what is the main place you can have contact without fellowship today? Where's the easiest place for this hate to grow? It's definitely on social media. You see, Christians are called not to conviction or compassion. We're called to both in. Christians share conviction clothed in compassion, and Christians extend compassion anchored to conviction. It's not either or, it's both in. Conviction and compassion. And so to those of you that have had abortions, once again, I want to say. I'm sorry, I'm sorry we've made you a stat. I'm sorry we've oversimplified your experience and minimized your experience, vilifying you in the process. And once again, I wanna say to you, if you were here and you've been through that, you've had an abortion, you've considered it, you're a man who's pressured a woman to have one, maybe you found out later and it broke your heart. Regardless, I just wanna say to you what Jesus said. Where are your accusers? It's not us. We do not condemn you. Romans 8, one says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The only thing we have for you is grace and mercy and help. If you're here and you're hurting, you're in pain, Maybe talking about this has stirred up some of this. It's one of the greatest reasons I was so nervous and anxious to talk about it this week. I didn't want to stir up any pain in your heart. But if you're struggling here and there is pain in your heart regarding your past experiences with abortion, here's what I would invite you to do. You can text CITY HELP to 97000 and one of our pastors will be in touch with you in 24 hours. We'll pray with you, we'll meet with you, and if necessary, we'll get you hooked up with one of our licensed professional counselors to help you continue to navigate that pain and to experience freedom and healing in Jesus' name. And so if that's you and you're hurting, please reach out to us. And I just wanna to say to you one more time, with the devil meant for evil, God will and can turn around for your good and for his glory. That's what he does. That's the great news of the gospel final application point is this, stay consistent. We need to stay consistent. We we speak up with conviction. We serve with compassion and we need to stay consistent both as followers of Jesus and just logically and philosophically speaking. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you. I would challenge you. We need to stay consistent. So as it relates to the church here, we are pro-life womb to tomb and everything in between. We are for defending the unborn, but we are also going to promote and talk talk about fostering children and adopting children. And many people on our staff have done so. Many people on our, in our church have fostered kids and adopted kids, and we're gonna continue to talk about that and promote that and rally around that. We're gonna help those who have fostered kids and have adopted kids. We're going to care for and serve the immigrants among us. We're going to serve and care for and be there for ladies who are considering abortion or who have had abortions or have already done. So we're not going to berate them. I'm thankful that all the adoption centers that I'm aware of in the city of Lubbock are run by Christians. Maybe, maybe there's some that aren't, but all the agencies that are helping families foster and adopt kids are are led by Christians. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful and we can celebrate that Christians are the single largest group of people in our country who foster and adopt. That's true. And I'm thankful for that. That shows consistency in our message. But we who are many form one body. That's what the scripture teaches about the church. We we all can't do it all. And so we all have to decide what is the Holy Spirit leading me to do and how's the Holy Spirit leading me to apply this? because we all can't do it all, but we who are many form one body and together we can do a lot of good. We can preach the gospel and we can care for people and hopefully touch on all of these pro-life issues because we want to be consistent. But here's what I would invite you to remember, as I've said over this last year, to say that black lives matter I'm talking about here, the view of life, not an organization, but to say that black lives matter doesn't diminish other lives. And in the same way, standing for any one pro-life issue or application does not diminish the others. It does not mean we don't care about the others. If the philosophical argument is true for black lives then it's true for the unborn as well. A couple of years ago, I was doing my grandfather's funeral. I've told you all this before. And in that funeral, I was talking about how amazing this man was, how much we loved him, how special he was, how unique he was, and how broken we were over the loss of his life. You've all been there before. But if after that service you had come up to me and say, Clayton, (laughs) bless your heart, all granddads are special. How terribly mean, rude, and offensive, and out of place that would be, right? You might get punched in the face if you did that to somebody. All granddads are special. No, 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 no. Obviously, that's true. The the point, the, the whole point of that service is to mourn the brokenness of that loss of life and to celebrate that loss of life. It is absolutely appropriate to make special that person and that message in that moment. It's always appropriate to do so. When someone is broken, when someone is hurting, when a people are broken, when a people are mourning, when a people are feeling like they are overlooked and oppressed in our society, it would always be appropriate to listen and to have empathy towards them and to examine your own heart, not to discount their experience. That's always true. And the argument is philosophically sound. Jewish Holocaust victim, Ellie Weissel said this, whenever men and women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place at that moment must become the center of the universe. The Jews would have been annihilated in today's society. The conservatives in our country would say, yeah, what the Nazis are doing is wrong, but so is abortion. And all lives really matter. Making every issue a, a non-issue. Democrats and liberals would say, yeah, but if you don't enlist, if you don't enlist in the army, then they don't say you really care about the Jews. They would have left no one here to raise money and to scrimp and save and to collect metal and to finance and to support the war that was happening on the other side of the sea. There's not one way to serve these issues. There's multiple ways and they should all be celebrated. And so while our interpretation of scripture doesn't change, different people are going to be led by the Holy spirit to defend the oppressed, to engage and to apply the scripture in different ways. And yet at the same time, here's the tension here. There is a disconnect between our passion and speaking for the unborn, but our silence when it comes to police brutality and systemic racism, the world is right to point out that inconsistency. We need to be consistent But at the exact same time, if you believe that black lives matter and speak out against racial injustice because of your love for Jesus, as I have done, and as I do, then we must be consistent and support Christians who stand for the unborn. We cannot sacrifice our integrity here for political affinity. And so here's my big idea here as it relates to the church and politics. When it comes to engaging in politics, the church must guard against both errors, overplaying and punting. We don't need to overplay our hand, put too much hope in politics, but we don't need to punt our role here either. There's tension here. And so grace is always required where there is tension. Our primary role as followers of Jesus is to preach the gospel and make disciples. And if the church had been more focused on preaching the gospel and making disciples over the last hundred years, instead of power grabs, then maybe we wouldn't be in the place we are at in our country. But regardless, we are called to be salt and light to influence, to speak up for the oppressed, to perform ministries of mercy that adorn, not replace the gospel that we preach. To vacate our place of influence is to abdicate the conversation and the direction of our country. And so watch this, just like Jesus said, we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we can never render to Caesar what is God's. We can't, not as followers of Jesus, who stand on God's word, we can never render to Caesar what is God's. Now, let me close with this. Here's my fear as we talk about this today or as we engage in any political issue. Here's my fear is that if you are strongly pro-life, maybe you came into today knowing what I was gonna talk about. Maybe you've been here, you know, this whole morning. You're like, yeah, get him, Clayton, get him. That's my fear. I'm afraid if you've done that. I'm also afraid if, when I talk about systemic racism, that some of you are like, yeah, get them, get those people, get them. Listen, if that's your attitude, if that's your heart, then you're guilty. And you need to take the plank out of your own eye. That is never our heart. When we talk about things like this, we do so with brokenness and grace and mercy not arrogance and get them. No, we we come as followers of Jesus being the first ones to say, I am so sick and broken. I needed a doctor and we all need a doctor and we all need our doctor, our heavenly doctor, Jesus to heal our hearts and to heal our country. That's our heart. That's our attitude. It's not get them. And so if you've been more concerned about converting people to your politics than to Jesus, or you've been more concerned about your politics and the person themselves, than you're guilty. Some of us have been more concerned about political issues than we are the eternal destination of souls. This isn't the chicken and the egg. One comes before the other. Identity changes your philosophy and strategy, not the other way around. It's why we invite people to follow Jesus because Jesus changes people from the inside. He changes their identity, and then that begins to shift and transform their philosophy and their strategy, not the other way around. So let's not be more passionate or loud about a political position than we are about the person that changes our lives and our biblical mandate. As Grudem said, our attempts to influence governmental policies to make them more in line with biblical moral principles, adorn the gospel, they don't replace it. And so if you're here today and you've disagreed with most of what I've said, I get it, because you're not a follower of Jesus. I get it. And so my invite, my challenge to you is to consider giving your life to Jesus the one who died in your place for your sin and three days later rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. I want you to know more about a person than I want you to know about my political position. I want you to know about the person that changed my life and can change yours too, where you could be forgiven of your sin, you could be made right with God and you could know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus today because he rose from the grave proving that he's God, that I would invite you to jump on our app, fill out our connect form and say you're committing your life to Jesus today. But it's the same gospel Paul writes in Ephesians 2. It's the same gospel that tears down all the walls of hostility, Paul says. And it makes us fellow citizens of the city of our God. And so whether you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, male, female, it doesn't matter. The gospel tears down all the walls of hostility and it makes us fellow citizens of the city of our God. And so while people who love Jesus and his word must agree on the interpretation of God's heart and his law and the various applications for the church's role, we can pursue different applications and we can and will disagree on applications as it relates to the government. But here's my prayer as the gospel tears down the walls of hostility. Here's my prayer that we will disagree politically but still love each other unconditionally and be united missionally. We can disagree politically, but love each other unconditionally and be united missionally. That's what the gospel does. And if you're not there yet, then might I just invite you to consider that the gospel has not taken root in your heart. And I would invite you in this moment to consider that maybe you've been thinking wrong, just like I did this past year. Would you pray with me? Right now just between you and God, I want to ask you a couple of questions. This is between you and God. Just heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want you to reflect on your own heart here for a moment, just just between you and God. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Has your compassion been anchored to conviction? Just ask God right now, between you and him. Has my compassion been anchored to conviction? And if it hasn't, I would invite you in this moment, just to ask God by his spirit to bring some realignment, to realign your heart and your thinking with the good news of the gospel and with the truth of the scripture. Or maybe you're here right now and I would invite you to pray this prayer. Has your conviction, God has my conviction been clothed in compassion? Or have my convictions lost their tether to compassion? And if so, then maybe you would invite God right now in this moment to realign your heart, to realign your thinking by the power of his Holy Spirit. God, that's our prayer right now. We all should have the humility to look back and say, have I been thinking wrong about this issue? And I pray that right now through the Holy Spirit's power, you would bring realignment, realignment to the gospel, realignment to the truth of your word, to grace and truth. God, may we be a people, a family of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.